From Michigan Radio, this is Stateside. I'm April Baer. Today, efforts to get Michigan journalist Danny Fenster out of a Myanmar prison after more than 100 days in captivity. We certainly are not resigned to him being in prison for a long period of time. Every week we're thinking, you know, what new levers can we use? We'll talk with Congressman Andy Levin. Then, a new study reveals lower learning levels during the pandemic. Does this mean students need to be held back? I don't know that retention is the answer, especially in a year where kids were not really provided with the opportunity to learn the way that they could have been had they been inside school buildings for a full year and a half. And two musicians send a radio love letter to other musicians and fans grounded during months of social isolation. As a performer, I miss the rowdy, the rowdy, <laughs> the rowdy audiences. Those stories and more coming up. Welcome to Stateside. I'm April Bear. Today, what we learned from last year's test scores about pandemic learning in Michigan. That story is coming up later in the show. But first, journalist Danny Fenster of Southeast Michigan has been detained in Myanmar for more than 100 days for his work in the country. Fenster's family is working to keep Danny's story alive in the state as contact with him and information about his well-being have been limited. Congressman Andy Levin has been working with Fenster's family and with foreign governments to try to secure his release. He joins us now to talk about these efforts. Andy Levin, welcome back to Stateside. Thank you so much, April. It's great to hear your voice. Let me just ask straight away, what's the latest with Danny Fenster? Well, you know, it's 101 days now since he was um, unjustly grabbed and imprisoned in the insane prison in Yangon. And uh, the COVID crisis and the outbreak of unrest in that prison and other things have conspired to really throw a wrench in uh, his access to our embassy and our consular officials, to his access to his family. And, and so the latest is he's just continuing to go through this series of pro forma hearings every couple of weeks. And uh, there's, you know, there's not a lot of progress. On the other hand, they still haven't charged him with anything. So that's a good thing because mm-hmm. we want to get him out of there without them charging him with anything since he didn't do anything. But also, you know, the fear is that might make them have to, you know, go through some more motions to save face before they let him go and come home to see his family. Lengthen the procedural process. Exactly. Yeah. What is it like trying to communicate with officials in Myanmar about him? Well, you know, I've repeatedly uh, spoken with their ambassador here, but even that, I mean, they've had a coup, right? So that ambassador is the same person who was the ambassador of their government before the coup. So, you know, he obviously may not have the kind of level of standing with the the military generals who are running the country. So it's very difficult. And Burma's been an isolated country, you know, for much of its history. And now, because the U.S. appropriately has been very critical of the coup and of the murderous response from the coup regime when the people stand up and say, hey, we want our democracy. The U.S. government doesn't have, you know, real extensive relations with the people running the country. So that, you know, that's not ideal for getting somebody out of prison. 
Sure. Is there any way to know Danny Fenster's true physical condition right now? Our embassy there has has done such a tremendous job. And in truth, our consular officials there have extensive uh, networks within the prison, relationships with the staff of the prison, the people who run the prison. And so we do, you know, we have gotten pretty good information about Danny on a regular basis. So as far as we know right now, he has not been tortured or otherwise mistreated. He hasn't been denied food or water. Um, he's he's uh, kept segregated in a, you know, quote unquote, high value prisoner area. So, um, you know, and I, by the way, I credit his family and our government's efforts to lift up his story uh, for, for the fact that he hasn't been treated even worse. I think the regime there is at least thinking, well, there's no point in having, you know, a big black eye over this that we don't have to by doing something stupid. So that's, um, that's why we've got to keep lifting up his story right until the moment we get him the heck out of there. Do you know if Danny's family has been able to have any direct or indirect contact with him? I mean, maybe exchanging messages or have they heard from him directly since he was taken into custody? Yes, yes. And and I have to preface this by saying that the Burmese regime has not followed international law. Our government should have had very quick and regular in-person contact with him. But that said, um, the family was able to talk to him uh, three times so far, the most recent being already a month ago on August 1st. And they have been able to exchange letters, his family and he have been able to exchange letters on several occasions. Of course, the letters are read by the authorities, but still um, they, they feel like that's another, you know, indication of how Danny's doing because he writes, you know, personal letters to them that he, they occasionally are able to get out of there. Are there ways other than just keeping his story alive, are there ways to put international political pressure on Myanmar in this case? I don't know if, if that would be through an intergovernmental body or, or some, other, some other way. Yes, I, there certainly are. And I sort of have two parts of my answer to that uh, very good question. The first part is that, I mean, I personally have spoken to the Thai ambassador, the Singapore ambassadors, you know, I mean, I don't know how many countries and, and our, our own state department is similarly the Japanese ambassador. I mean, raising this with other countries that have relationships with Burma, with ASEAN, the, the regional organization that Burma is part of with the ASEAN business group. So we're, we're raising it in many, many ways. And the second part of my answer is, that I can't really talk much about is, is that we certainly are um, working every angle of this beyond the official US government efforts um, to identify um, individuals, businesses, governments, organizations that would have relationships and leverage with the generals running Burma right now so that uh, we can uh, get Danny out of there, and we're going to continue to 
use every avenue we can think of. You know, it wasn't that long ago that your colleague, Congressman Dan Kildee, was undergoing negotiations for the release of one of his constituents. In that case, uh, the conversation was with Iran. This took years to get the return of Amir Hekmati. Are you considering that this may be a, a an effort of similar length and duration. I mean, have you have you talked with other colleagues about how they've pursued similar cases of detention with folks who were adversarial? Yes, I certainly have, and um, you know, we, we we there's a steady stream, unfortunately, of people uh, detained by other you know countries. But I am really hopeful that we will get Danny out much sooner than that. Um, We will keep working at it no matter how long it takes, April. So if it ends up being months and years rather than weeks, so be it. We'll be here fighting to get him out. But I feel like uh, we, uh, with the strength of the Fenster family and the efforts that we're undertaking, that we're going to get him out of there um, sooner rather than later. That's, That's my hope. And um, I, I guess I sort of feel like we have to operate on that premise because we certainly are not resigned to him being in prison for a long period of time. Uh, every week we're thinking, you know, what new levers can we use to uh, encourage them to, to basically to come to the conclusion that he's, it's more of a headache than it's worth to hang on to him. So let's, They'll probably do, they may do deport him or do something, you know, mm-hmm. say he did something and kick him out of the country. Whatever it is, we want him unconditionally released safely and unharmed. And we're going to try to make that happen sooner rather than later. Congressman, before we let you go, I wanted to offer condolences. Since the last time we talked, your uncle, longtime Michigan Senator Carl Levin, has died. And we know how much he meant to you and to others in the family and really to everyone who he represented. I just wondered if, if you'd be willing to share a couple of words about uh, the loss for you personally and and his his tradition of public service in the family. Well, thank you, first of all, April, for your thoughts. And it's been just kind of overwhelming, the outpouring Uh, from people and the stories he didn't just belong to our family you know he belonged to the people of Michigan Uh, but I I have to tell you I was just talking to a young person who uh, works for a senator who wanted to just meet with me on zoom for a senator from another state and we got to talking about the filibuster And I think in some ways that's emblematic of my relationship with Uncle Carl because he was a big proponent of the filibuster and I am a fierce opponent of the filibuster. I think we ought to get rid of it altogether. And, but just imagine, I think out of 435 representatives and 100 senators, there's not another one who has the blessing that I have of being able to call Sandy Levin and Carl Levin, who each served 36 years in the Congress, my dad in the House, my uncle in the Senate, and 
ask their advice or debate, <laughs> as it were, in this case, uh, you know, sort of the great issues of the day. Mm-hmm. And I will dearly miss his wit, his humility, his absolute grounding in being super serious about trying to figure out what's best for the people of Michigan. He just never changed in that way, April. And it's, uh, you know, it's quite a legacy for our state. Ninth District Congressman Andy Levin. Andy, thank you so much and our best to your dad. Thanks. Thanks so much. Take care, April. Next up, Michigan music from Beaver Island. There's so much music out there that most people are never going to hear. So we, we really wanted to, to draw the spotlight on the Michigan scene. We'll meet them right after the break. This is Stateside. I'm April Bear. Ahead of Labor Day weekend, we have a conversation to get you thinking about what it means to get back to normal. Steve Gerbach is a musician who lives in Manchester. He also has a place up on Beaver Island, right between the Mitten and the UP on Lake Michigan. While he spent time there during the pandemic, he was talking with fellow musicians about Michigan-based music. His next-door neighbor on Beaver Island also happens to be a musician, Jackson Smith. The two of them hatched an idea to feed the souls of everyone who'd been missing their performance spaces. Take a listen to this. It's a sample of their low-watt radio show on WVBI 100.1 FM in Beaver Island. The show's called Songs from the Trail. Well, howdy, folks. It's Songs from the Trail on 100.1 WVBI, the voice of Beaver Island. I'm Jackson Smith with my good friend Steve Gerbach. Hello, everybody. And, you know, Steve, it's a little different this time. I'm in New York City right now at a Studio B at the famous Electric Lady Studios in New York City with my Grammy-nominated sister, Jesse Smith. Jesse, hello. Hello. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Uh, thank you for being on the show. <laughs> Je- Jesse's, uh, Je- Jesse's getting to see the magic behind the scenes, uh, you know, the stuff... You know this. You know the, me putting the potions in the. Uh, it's so magic exciting, <laughs> and I feel like I might be songs from the trail's biggest fan. So what? I'm uh, extra special to see behind the scenes magic. No, I, I well, think she is. She's always very supportive. <laughs> and again, I'm very thank you. supportive. We yeah, we appreciate everything. Yes, we, you. For us. their conversations and music have been making a lot of people smile during this pandemic, and we have them with us now from their places in Beaver Island. Steve Jackson, welcome to Stateside. Thank you for having us. Glad to be here. Thank you. Can I ask you both, I mean, Steve, maybe we'll start with you and go to Jackson. Could you talk to us about maybe a music venue or a spot that you miss the most during all this? Yeah, my own. We have, (laughs) a couple years ago, a couple friends of mine, we started a a once a month, listening room in manchester michigan called manchester underground that was really just starting to get rolling we had some really great acts play jackson being one of them with uh, zachariah malachi and the hillbilly executives and then the uh, the whole pandemic came crashing down on everybody jackson what about you um man well you know i i do miss places like again like steve's venue he had uh i a lot of just in Michigan, a lot of the great bars that choose to have music here. You know, like normally uh, in the summertime, uh, I'd bring some musical acts up here to play at like the Circle M on the island and 
you know, Beaver Island, uh, the uh, community loves good music. So it's like, if you bring a good band here, they give back. And, you know, I, so I miss being able to play places like that, of course. Obviously, people have been making music all during this. And some people have even been releasing music that they made in their home. But is there a kind of show that either of you feel like you're missing a lot? As a listener, I, I really miss just going to... Uh, more listening room type venues, those type of shows or like the arc is a good example, like places you go, you know, to just sit and listen to music. And, you know, that doesn't have all the, uh, you know, rowdiness of the bar, but on the flip side of that, as a performer, I miss the rowdy, the rowdy, <laughs> the rowdy audiences. It's like well, double edged sword, I guess. For sure. I mean, I really, I, I feel for my hardcore friends more than my folky friends right now. <laughs> Well, I should ask, I mean, have you guys even been like, when we say you two have been talking, like how have those conversations evolved? Have they been evolving face to face or more just like over the fence? Hey, neighbor, I'm over here at a safe distance from you and not breathing in your direction. <laughs> no, no, it's been quite literal. Like, we talk on the phone almost every day. And then when we uh, do the radio show, uh, you know, we use a uh, technology called clean feed. So, you know, it sounds like we're in the room together, but you know, breaking the fourth wall, we are not. <laughs> How did the conversation evolve from, gee, this pandemic is really horrible to, gee, this pandemic is really horrible and we should do a radio show? <laughs> well, well, it's interesting because um, one of the good things about social media these days is uh, you know, Jackson had actually posted something on one of the social media pages about WVBI, which is a small radio station here on, on Beaver Island. And he just posted the link to the station and, and I gave him a private message and I said, Hey man, you know, I've, I've, I've been pitching these guys to maybe do a, a Michigan based Michigan connected music show. And he, you know, Jackson gives me a thumbs up or, you know, whatever he did. And I'm like, dude, I'm serious. And he goes, so am I, you know, set it up. And so we did. And, and it really took off pretty quick from there. <laughs> it, yeah, it, it sure did. The episode we recorded thinking it was just a demo. The, uh, uh, the guy in charge here, Dennis Winslow, was like, well, okay, we'll put this on the air in two weeks. And we were like, what? <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> this is kind of funny how that worked out. Here's what I want to know is how did you guys get WVBI to run this on Saturday night at 7? That is a coveted slot for radio people. You know, I really can't say that was the slot that was offered to us. I really can't say. Yeah, we well, honestly, we were expecting like, you know, 1130 on Sunday, 1130 p.m. on Sunday. So. Yeah. <laughs> Tuesday morning at 5 a.m. Right. <laughs> yeah. However, which is really funny because the signal on the island or doesn't really leave the island, but due to the Internet, you know, WVBI.net, you can listen to our show anywhere in the world. And we actually have quite a contingent in Australia. Yeah, got a little got a hot spot there. We have a hot spot in New York. We actually had a, a a crew in New York that got together to listen to the show at, at a, a dinosaur barbecue in Harlem, and they flew whitefish in and made whitefish Rubens and listened to our show, and they posted a picture and sent it to us. That was just so cool. <sighs> and then and, and then we have another group down in Brazil. Actually, one of the uh, graphic artists. Daniel Kondo from Brazil does he does all our posts all our posters <laughs> so I mean these are people who kind of heard about it through the musical grapevine I'm sure but they're also of course attracted to the music could you talk a little bit about what you wanted for the playlists yeah well our goal is uh, threefold really we wanted to expose 
Michigan connected music, any genre, it could be the artist, it could be the songwriter, it could be uh, the producer, maybe where it was recorded. You know, there's just so much music out there that most people are never going to hear. So we, we really wanted to draw the spotlight on the Michigan scene. And then uh, in conjunction with that, obviously the island, because we, we both love the island. And I think we live in the coolest, most funky state in the union and, and, and sheds a little light on that as well. It's also been fun because even just for us discovering new music on our own state, because you know, I, I spent most of my life in the Detroit area. And I got to say, the scene there can envelop itself in a bit of a bubble. And then, you know, so when we started doing this show and I started, you know, myself researching music to put on, I, I'm discovering all these artists in Michigan with these big followings. I'm like, how did I not hear about these people? <laughs> yeah, but so that's actually been kind of cool just for me personally. Yeah. Jackson, who are some of the bands that have been part of your discovery process that you've brought to light on the show? Oh, geez, you you show me a few, Steve. Uh, actually, just the last episode, uh, Esther Rose, yeah. who had, uh, I think she's from Columbiaville, Michigan, originally. I, I had not heard of her. And then uh, our first episode, I believe, right out of the gate, uh, Ryan Racine. Great artist out of Ypsilanti, Michigan. Yeah, yeah, no, that's and just you know stuff like stuff like that's been so exciting and. And, you know, like Steve touched on too, we, we, you know, we touch on bands from Michigan, songs about Michigan, even songs with Michigan backstories. We, uh, we had a show with, uh, Al Sutton, uh, who's a producer with a studio out of Royal Oak. And we went through music, not necessarily Michigan artists, but he did produce their music. So there's a Michigan connection there. And that was really cool. You know, that just, there's little bits of Michigan all over the place, you know? You know, this is kind of a, an expansive question, but I wanted to ask both of you if there's kind of a a musical arc for what you've been listening to during the pandemic year. You know, if there's a certain kind of thing that you find yourself listening to that really has gotten you through or things that you weren't expecting to sustain you that you have been listening to. Steve, do you have any thoughts on that? My playlist lately is just, oh my God, just this mid-tempo, <laughs> almost, I don't know, borderline depressing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what, what but, qualifies as depressing? I, I need, a, I need well, a barometer here. Well, you know, I, I don't know if it's really depressing, but it's, it's like the same tempo. It's really laid back and on subject matter. I have been turned on lately by a lot of artists' interpretations of famous artists. For example... I've come to a lot of Bob Dylan's music by other people's interpretations of it. You know, uh, for example, a Michigan artist uh, named Luke Winslow King, who did a cover of uh, Bob Dylan's uh, It's Not Dark Yet. How about you, Jackson? It's funny. Like I, my life before COVID was always pretty hectic. So up until COVID, the things I listened to were usually a pretty similar (laughs) playlist of five years ago, 10 years ago. And I just never had a, as much time as I wanted to discover new music, but now it's, uh, um, you know, COVID's given me a lot of free time. And, uh, um, you know, I find myself, uh, you know, like, Oh, there's, uh, an arm R&B song. I had never heard that I'm kind of digging now, or, you know, we did a bluegrass themed episode and, uh, um, what was that group? Uh, you, uh, oh, Detour D- Bluegrass. D- yeah, I, I, I love Bluegrass and had no idea they were around in the state. Or, you know, then there was, there was a rap artist from uh, Grand Rapids that did a song, uh, Citizen, and it's about a 
Civic Pride in the uh, city of Grand Rapids. Uh, the artist was, uh, I, want, I want to say Caleb. Yeah. But it, it was so cool. And I just, I would have never had time to discover all this stuff uh, before COVID, you know, so now I'm all over the place. It's a roller coaster of a playlist. <laughs> if you're just joining us, I'm talking today to Steve Gerbach and Jackson Smith, who started a Michigan-focused radio program on Beaver Island's community radio station. It's called Songs from the Trail. You know, this is such a weird upside-down time for musicians, especially those who, who thrive on on playing shows. And... I guess one of the things I kind of love about what you guys did is it's it's got a strong thread of DIY running through it. I mean, not everybody can start their own radio station for sure. But, you know, Jackson, you come from a family that's pretty strong in the in the musical DIY tradition. And Steve, I mean, it doesn't get much more DIY than opening your own music space, <laughs> your own musical venue. But I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what this year has meant for the musicians that you know. I mean, are they trying to get straight jobs or attempting to eke it out on what they have or what exactly? Mm, that's good. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I really, I don't know. We have some friends uh, that are just, you know, Dylan Dun Jennifer Westwood and Dylan Dunbar, a couple of the hardest working artists I feel in Detroit are, they are hustling like nobody i mean just been going they'll travel you know 600 miles between gigs just to keep it playing and uh one of the things that i find really cool about our show is it seems like every week we get pinged with you know whether it's somebody from australia or locally here they're like thank you we've we've never heard this artist we just bought their album where you downloaded their songs you know nobody's gonna get you know i hope they get rich off it but it's that stuff matters to me, you know, and then hopefully when we, we pull out of this, uh, this situation we're in with a pandemic, well, maybe they, they like the tour, you know, bring them down here to Brazil, bring Ryan Racine down here to you know, Brazil or whatever, you know? Right. Jackson, what about you? What do you see happening? You know, it, it's, it's hard to say right now. Cause obviously, you know, like, you know, uh, touring was my, uh, bread and butter, you know, and I, uh, you know, when COVID hit, I had that, where were you moment when we were, uh, I was playing with, <laughs> and uh, I play with my mother, Patty Smith. I mean, I'm sure someone wants to know that, but you don't um, have to uh, say that in a shamefaced way, by the way. <laughs> well, no, it's it's a gimmick. Other mom, I have a I have on my my kid whining mom sound effects, but it's just a mom. joke on the show. Mom, <laughs> but you know, we we our last regular show we played before the pandemic really hit was we, we played the uh, two, two shows at the Fillmore in San Francisco. And then, uh, you know, the, the, we were supposed to go to Seattle and it was right when those first 15 or so cases were at that nursing home there. And I was like, you know, guys, this doesn't look good. Oh, well, you know, it, it'll be fine. Whatever. And while we're in the air, the uh, governor out there pulled the plug on mass gatherings and we were standing outside the hotel, uh, downtown Seattle and with the tour manager and he, he's breaking the news to us. And as he's talking to us, a line of um, hotel employees walk out the hotel all at once. They had just laid off half their hotel staff and I heard the bass player going, Bob, we'll be back touring in a couple of weeks. And here we are. I don't know. I've lost track a year. Yeah. A year and some change later, but you know, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I think shows at smaller venues will probably start happening first, but I think it's probably going to be a long time before any bands that play larger venues can do anything even remotely close to what they were doing. I mean, I know even for us, like 2019, I think 
we closed out our um, European tour. We were doing a show in Acaruna, Spain, and uh, sixty-seven thousand people. And uh, you know, and then we just did our first like regular show on a stage <laughs> at the City Winery with limited capacity in New York, a uh, hundred people. <laughs> and Jeez. and not to not to sound ungrateful, I, I was teasing my mom. I was like, now you know what my gigs are like. <laughs> 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 but um but i mean i and you know like i said we were very grateful to play this show but the fact is it's that far off from at least for us getting to where we were at i mean we're all finding out where our comfort zone is for being around other people again i wanted to ask both of you what returning to live music means to you in terms of like when and how fast steve what about you yeah honestly as far as when i think this year 21 is going to be a little better than last year, but still slow, I think. You know, I, I think maybe Q3 or Q4, we'll see some improvement. I'm hoping 2022 is going to be a lot better, but that remains to be seen. You know, I, honestly, you know, the venue that I have is really tight. I mean, it's a cool space. It's in the basement of a mill along the river in Manchester, Michigan. And comfortably, it seats probably about 45 people. But honestly, it's going to be a while before people have the comfort level to do something like that again. Yeah. I mean, Jackson, you gave us a little taste of it. But what do you see for yourself in terms of live shows in the next year? I mean, I can tell you, as the year progresses, there's more bookings later, like in the in the fall and uh, going into the winter. Uh, and, and those bookings are hopeful. You know, it's like, we hope we're doing them, but I mean, just we're, we're at the mercy of where the, where the uh, pandemic goes. Um, yeah, but obviously we want everyone to be, uh, you know, healthy and safe before we're doing huge shows. Um, when festivals are really able to go on at something resembling pre-COVID times, I think it's going to be wild. People are going to be chomping at the bit to do these things again. So, you know, it's when it's ready and it's safe, the flood, <laughs> the floodgates are going <laughs> to look open. out. Yep. Yeah. Well, thanks in the meantime for keeping the lights on you guys with the show and everything else that you're doing. Jackson Smith and Steve Gerbach are co-hosting songs from the trail on station WVBI 100.1 FM on Beaver Island, but you can stream their show Saturday nights at 7 o'clock Eastern. It is so great to hear your voices. Thank you for talking to us. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. That conversation with Jackson and Steve is from this past spring. Stateside's taking Labor Day off next week, but in our place, Michigan Radio is airing a special broadcast of Songs from the Trail, This will be a show focused on music from and by Michiganders, like you just heard. And this special with Jackson and Steve is also going to feature a conversation with Oscar and Grammy Award-winning Detroit music producer Luis Resto. Listen for it. Songs from the Trail, Monday at 3 p.m. and 9 p.m., right here on Michigan Radio. In just a minute, how we pick up with children's education and healing. These are the kids that have for a long time been the least well-served by our state system of public education. And they're the ones who are coming out of the pandemic even harder hit. Standardized test scores are in. They're not the whole story, but they do tell a part of it. More in just a minute. This is Stateside. I'm April Bear. Teachers are starting to get a sense of where Michigan kids stand after 18 months of interrupted learning. 
We have some additional data on that this week from Michigan State's Education Policy Innovation Collaborative, or EPIC. It's just published results of a new study that finds students' learning gains moved so slowly during the pandemic that there are more than 3,000 students now identified as needing to repeat third grade due to low reading scores. Catherine Strunk is director of EPIC. She's also a professor of education policy at MSU's College of Education. Catherine, welcome back to Stateside. Thank you for having me, April. So what did this study tell you about students' progress? So we released two studies this week in conjunction with MDE's release of its MSTEP results in 2021. And I think all three studies together paint a very similar picture, which is that progress in academic learning really slowed over the pandemic. This isn't surprising. Um, This was what we have found in every single state that has published similar results. Kids just did not have the same opportunity to learn over the last year and a half as they'd had in previous years. And this really just disrupted their learning. Yeah. I mean, as you say, this is not terribly shocking. There are those third grade results that we can talk about. But how slow would you say things went overall? You know, what's interesting is there's a lot of variation, so it's hard to know. And I want to put a caution out for everyone thinking about these data, which is that the participation rates in in the assessments this year were pretty low. So between 64 to 72% of kids took the M steps overall. In third grade, it was about 72% of kids took the ELA assessment. So, and the kids that didn't take the assessment tended to be lower income, um, people of color, they didn't, people who didn't do the testament assessment were English learners and students with disabilities. And so what we're kind of seeing here is in some ways an overestimate actually of student progress during the pandemic. And so that's an important, important takeaway. In terms of overall, you know, we found that about 5% of tested third grade students scored below what was a predetermined cut point on the MSTEP. This cut point was made years ago before the pandemic. And that made them eligible for retention based on their MSTEP scores. This is higher than we would have predicted based on the 2019 scores about that were about 4.1% of third grade students would have been predicted to be retained or eligible for retention. So this tells us that learning really did slow, especially in third grade ELA, which is the point of this study that we're talking about here. Um, and in the more worrisome part is also that it looks like it was particularly tough for kids who come from the kind of populations that we might care most about from an equity perspective. So African-American students, um, again, students with special, with special needs, English learners, students who come out of the districts that have been traditionally the lowest performing in the state. These are the kids that have for a long time been the least well-served by our state system of public, public education. And they're the ones who are coming out of the pandemic even harder hit. I'm glad that you mentioned the fact that you're looking at these results, uh, assuming that there are some equity problems. I mean, do you think that these results are the right place to start then, if we can already assume that tests like MSTEP weren't giving us the whole picture? I think they are a good place to start. Um, and I'll tell you why from a couple of perspectives, and I'll tell you where I think we shouldn't, what we shouldn't do with these tests. Again, I think we can look at these tests from a state level and say, this might be, again, an overestimate of where we are in terms of learning for kids this year. And what we can see is already, you know, not a great picture. And I think that we should be able to, from a state perspective, be able to really consider how we might want to target resources to to ensure that any inequities that have been exacerbated during the pandemic are, you know, are absolved and are helped. What I don't think we should do 
is try to compare districts to districts or schools to schools because the participation rates vary dramatically across districts and schools. So because of the waiver we received from the feds this year, um, we didn't have to give the test to students who were not enrolled in person and students were given the option to take the test. So in districts that were remote the entire year, and there were several of them in Michigan, those districts had very low participation rates. Um, similarly, you know, a lot of the other districts that, you know, had parents who decided to opt their kids out of the, of the test. And so we just really don't know yet, I mean, unless you kind of dive into the Michigan School Data website, you don't really have a good sense for how many kids even took the test in each district. And as a result, we don't want to make generalizations and comparisons for kids, for districts where kids didn't take the test and it's sort of outlier children who might have been there for that day. What I also think we can learn is, you know, I have a parent of, of two fourth graders in, in Michigan public schools, and I'm looking forward to getting their, their MSTEP test from last year, because I think I can learn a lot about what they didn't learn and sort of where they are now. Um, if, I'm, if I had older kids and I could compare to their MSTEPs two years ago, I'd be able to understand any changes in their trajectory over time. And that'll help me as a parent advocate for what they need with my school. When we say that there are students whose whose learning progress was so slow that we'd consider them ready to repeat a grade level, I, I'm not even sure, given what just happened, what that might mean. There's this entire generation of kids who learned more slowly than they would have in a normal year. Are there situations in which you think it might cause more problems than it would solve to hold kids back for academic reasons? I do, and I don't think that's just particular to this year, although obviously this year it's accentuated. Um, yeah, that, qu clarify, that, question, that question is in play whenever we, whenever we talk about learning exactly. gaps, for sure. You know, the research on retention is, is pretty mixed. There's some evidence that retention might help students in the short term, um, you know, remediate and, and learn and then be able to progress. But there's not a lot of good evidence that it actually helps students in the long term. And in fact, there's some evidence that kids who are retained early in their careers are more likely to drop out, less likely to go to college. And so we really want to think about the long-term effects of retention overall. I do want to point out that the REBA grade three law actually doesn't require that all 3,000 something of these kids would be retained. What it does is it says these students have been flagged for retention and parents and schools and superintendents should work together to understand if these kids would benefit from retention or if there was another way that we could understand their progress through a portfolio or other assessments that the districts might have about the kids. So just to be clear, this isn't like a fate or complete for these 3,600 kids. Um, but that being said, you know, especially given the proportion of kids who were flagged for retention from different kinds of groups, you know, far more African-American kids, again, far more low-income kids would have been flagged for retention. And these are exactly the kids that we don't necessarily want to just hold back and hope for the best. There are a whole set of interventions that are part of the REBA grade three law that are particularly important this year. Um, there's coaches that are going to need to work with teachers on how to really individualize instruction to help students who are struggling readers and struggling with their literacy. I don't know that retention is the answer, especially in a year where kids were not really provided with the opportunity to learn the way that they could have been had they been inside school buildings for a full year and a half. Yeah. Knowing what you know about these test results and knowing what you know about where Michigan schools are in this moment, do the schools have what they need to do the remedial work that, that kids need right now? Well, there was just a very lot of money contributed to schools, both through Michigan's own state school finance system and through the federal ARP funds. So this is one of the first times where we're going to see a lot of resources available for kids. 
So now the question is, how are districts and schools going to use those resources that are in ways that are going to really help kids? Um, we're doing this also in the midst of a teacher shortage. And so one of the things that we know is if we can put more kids in the, more teachers in the classroom, more good teachers in the classroom to help students and work with them more individually and differentiate instruction, that's a surefire way to really help students accelerate their learning. Unfortunately, like other states, Michigan is suffering from a shortage of teachers, and we're not really in a place where we could just bring teachers into the classroom, especially because this funding is time limited. And so districts might not want to just hire a whole slew of new teachers. They might have to lay off in three years. So we're kind of in an interesting position right now where what's going to be very important is to understand how are schools and districts using this money? How are they really targeting literacy for early learners and helping students? What kinds of programs are they using? And then how, what are the results of this in the, in the outcome years? The other piece that I think is critical, though, is, you know, kids have been very disrupted in all parts of their lives, especially students who live in places that were really affected by the disease. So it's not just that they're coming in having had slower learning gains, but they're coming in having a lot of social trauma. Um, you know, they've lost habits and structures. So there's going to be a whole slew of work that has to be done as well this year with reacclimating students to the school building with helping students recover from trauma, with helping students understand and make sense of what just happened in the world. So there's sort of a double whammy happening right now, both in the mental and emotional side of things, as well as the learning side of things. And those two have to go hand in hand. Is there anything else? We have just about a minute left. Is there anything else that you'd like to know that you think is going to be important to moving forward to helping kids get back where they need to be? Yeah, I think what's going to be really critical, again, is to collect the data on what schools and districts are doing and for which kids so that we can actually learn from this experience and be able to continue to accelerate learning for the students. It's going to be a multi-year process. Oh, interesting. But you're not but you're not necessarily saying there's a there's an academic test result that we need at this point. No, I don't think there's another academic test result. I'm, I'm hopeful and I know that their legislature has required that districts use benchmarks again or in the next year or two to be able to continue to track students' progress. And that will be very important for districts and schools and teachers to have so they have more information on their kids. Katherine mm-hmm. Strunk has been talking with us today. She's director of EPIC, the Education Policy Innovation Collaborative at Michigan State. Katherine, it's great talking to you. Thank you. You too, April. Thanks for having me. The team from Cheers, Lester Graham and Tammy Coxon, have mixed up a new cocktail to get your weekend started. Cheers. Cheers. Of all, cheers. Hi, Tammy. Hi, Lester. That's Tammy Coxon with Tammy's Tastings. Somebody went to Mammoth Distilling without me. That's true. I, I went and visited a whole bunch of up north distilleries without you. <laughs> okay. Will you ever forgive That's, me? It's fine. I'll make my way up there sooner or later. Um, Mammoth has several tasting rooms. Which one did you go to? So I went to their tasting room in Bel Air. I actually stayed in the apartment, the Airbnb they have right above it. Oh, nice. Yeah, if you're looking for a place to stay in Bel Air, super fun. But I also got to go to the actual distillery, which is in Central Lake. All these times that I've been saying, Mammoth, they're up north somewhere. Now I know they're in Central Lake because I've been there. You know, there is a tasting room in southern Michigan as well, in Lenawee County, in Adrian. In Adrian, yeah, that's the newest one. And I don't live too awfully far from there. I still haven't been down there to visit them. I, I have to put that on my 
Go listening. You should, because each of the tasting rooms kind of has its own character and its own vibe. And a lot of them have music, which is starting up again now. So that's fantastic. Right. That's great. So you've got a lot of product here from Mammoth, and you're putting it all into the same cup. What are you making? All right. So when I was sitting at the bar in Bel Air at the tasting room, as we were getting ready to go, the bartender said to me, oh, hey, try this. This is sort of what we serve as like a little shot. And it was just mixing the coffee liqueur and the cherry bounce equal parts. And I tasted it and I thought, oh, this is really good. And yeah, that's absolutely, you know, a great little parting gift shot kind of thing. Sort of a cordial. Right. Um, but I thought, how could I take this and make it into a cocktail? So what you have before you is a little bit of an evolution. And I should warn you that this evolution has only ever happened in my mind. You're going to be the first person to test it. So my first thought was treat this kind of like a Negroni, right? The cherry bounce, it's a fruit-based liqueur with botanicals and spices. That's kind of like sweet vermouth. Coffee liqueur, kind of bitter, kind of like Campari, and then throw some gin in there. And Mammoth makes all of those products, and they're all delicious. So that was my first go, and I liked it. But I thought, this is a little heavy for summer, so maybe I will add some club soda. But then I thought, what I really want to do is like, like a chocolate egg cream soda kind of classic soda fountain kind of thing. So what are you going to do with what you've got in there, though? How are you going to do that? Well, I'm going to add an egg white. Oh, okay. Yeah. You're you're game for this experiment? Sure. Okay. So ounce of each of the gin, the cherry bounce, and the coffee liqueur going in my shaker. I'm going to shake the heck out of that with an egg white and some ice. And then strain that drink off, throw away the ice, and then shake it a bunch more. So that's a reverse dry shake, which we've talked about before. And then I'm going to add that to a highball glass. I've already got a little bit of club soda in the bottom, and then I'm going to add a little bit more club soda at the end to kind of top it off, probably about two to three ounces total. Oh, yeah, that's really fizzing up now. Yes. Oh, and I forgot. I'm going to put a little bit of simple syrup in here too because I think the egg white will need it, but we'll decide later if that's right or not. Okay, so now I have to... Make a judgment about this drink. That's right. You have to tell me if I succeeded in this grand experiment. I love the fact that you've got mint in the drink. uh, I'm always nice to your nose. Uh, I'll I'll be honest. I think it feels a little watered down. Yeah. Yeah. I think we could go with an ounce less club soda. I think that that would be a better... Uh, spot. And that's honestly where I was aiming for. Um, But then it didn't fill my glass up. I I got these new glasses at a yard sale. They're beautiful and I love them, but they're a little bit bigger than this drink wanted. And so I filled up the glass instead of paying attention to the flavor. And this is a good lesson for people, right? Because so many recipes say top with club soda, but glass size really matters if you're going to just randomly add ingredients to the top. So I should have trusted my instincts. We'll put the right recipe on the website, just two ounces of club soda. Okay. I have to say that didn't seem like an alcoholic drink to me at all. Yay! I have accomplished my soda fountain goal. Yeah, I, I was really surprised because, you know, I, I thought I'd at least pick up the gin. The other two, you know, you might, because they're so sweet, not really notice that they were had an alcohol taste or feel at all. But the gin should. And it doesn't in this drink. It's just, it's just a very nice, refreshing, and I'd love to taste it without the extra ounce of uh, club soda to see just exactly how good it comes across. 
Well, I'm calling this the torch lake tipple. So if you think about something that you would want to drink while you were sitting out next to Torch Lake, you want something that's really refreshing and doesn't taste overly like alcohol. Right, yeah. It would be very nice. It would be really nice. Yeah, I can see that. And then you can have a club soda chaser afterwards. There you go. All right, so now... Now what are you making? Okay, so I was getting ready to throw away the egg yolk, and I thought... But wait, I know how much Lester likes a flip. And I think this gin and this cherry bounce and this coffee liqueur together might be a really good flip. And I have even less idea if this is going to work <laughs> than I did with the last one. So, But no club soda this who time. Who should go first? Go ahead. Okay. Yeah. Mm, I do not wish to predispose you to any notions. I like that a lot. Um, there's a lot more to it. It's a lot thicker. Uh, I can taste the gin this time, uh, which I couldn't in the other one. But that's kind of like um. It, it's got texture a little bit like a milkshake. Absolutely. It's a flip, right? Think yeah. of it as melted ice cream, basically. Yeah, basically. And it's it's really nice. I really I would drink that if somebody gave it to me. I think that's the Torch Lake in winter kind of a drink. Yeah, actually, that would be really nice because it's got a little more body to it, um, a little more substance. Yeah, that would be that would be perfect. So not your favorite flip ever? I'm, no, I'm it's pretty, good. No, I'm it's, pretty smitten with this. I, I actually am really pleased. I do like it. I do like it. But, you know... Anytime there's an egg drink, I'm I'm skeptical and have to get used to it. And yeah, we've gone through this with eggnog and, and everything else. I know. And then you're always pleasantly Flips surprised. Flips and fizzes and nogs. And Flips and fizzes and sours and nogs. Yeah, lots of eggs around here. But it's good. I like it. In fact, I like both of them. I think you're onto something. You've got something really good. I'd like to see how... Are you going to use this in a class? I might. I think you, I'd love to see what your class thinks of these two, both and of them. the great thing for Mammoth is they can make all of these. I didn't use anything that didn't come out of their tasting room. Oh, right, because they're so, limited to hey, what Mammoth, they can use. Yeah. if you think these sound delicious, throw them on a menu. Tell us what your customers think. Torch Lake Tipple, what's the other one? Torch Lake Flip. Okay, good enough. Cheers. Cheers. And that's Stateside for today. I'm April Bear. We will see you next time. Take care of yourself. Bye-bye. <laughs>